We are going to continue with our message series that start here praying through the Psalm series. Let's read Psalm 46. So in Psalm 46, from the director of music of the Sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. So Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Thanks, Eric. Good morning, Current. Thank you. Uh, that psalm that was just read, Psalm 46, are words that have literally comforted nations. Uh, they're words that have been sung in some of the most spectacular music halls. They're words that have been read and prayed in countless churches, as well as many times quietly at the bedside of people facing sickness, pain, anxiety, even death. Uh, on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, uh, President Obama read this entire psalm, Psalm 46, to our nation in a memorial. Uh, these are words that have been used for thousands of years to comfort and to encourage people in times of tragedy and loss. Uh, the Christian church has been inspired by these words as well as you can imagine. Martin Luther was known to sing this psalm with his friends when he was discouraged by the progress of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Luther wrote a hymn, a famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, inspired by this very psalm. Bach and Mozart as well were both inspired by this psalm, Psalm 46, and wrote music to accompany the corporate singing of these words. Christians have a rich tradition of navigating the challenges of a broken world, often by singing together songs that comfort the grieving. Uh, the Christian story begins with a creator God who made the world good, but then sin enters the picture, and as a consequence, everything that we see and experience is broken in some way. Death enters all of these stories, all of our stories, and for each of us, we have to grapple with grieving and anxiety in a broken world. Uh, I'm amazed, really, at the number of people I've met over the years who found their way back to church or started coming for the first time after dealing with the death of a loved one. Uh, parents who don't know how, they're to, how to help their children deal with the loss of a grandparent or a friend, and then they come to church looking for help in times of grief, looking for answers to their questions. And ultimately, the Bible does teach that there'll be a time in which Jesus, who God sent to fix this broken world through his death and resurrection, will come again and will make all things right. The Bible teaches that at this time, injustice will be remedied, sin will be eliminated, God will judge the earth, and finally, once and for all, bring reconciliation between God and man and man and man, uh, as well as lasting justice and peace. There's a promise that every tear will be wiped away, that death will be defeated. 
But until then, there's this tension in this middle period. Uh, I tell my kids often when we talk about difficult things and grieving and hardship we experience in the world, that we live in the middle of a story, that there will be a happy ending, but not yet. There will be a time when all the wrongs will be righted, where there's no war, no death, no strife, no pain. But that's not what we experience today, right? Uh, it's not our present experience because we're living in this middle of this longer story. It doesn't take a lot to look around and find violence, to find hatred, to find war, to find division, to find things that make us anxious and stressed and grieve. Uh, all of us can see the brokenness of this world outside of us and often inside of ourselves as well, right? Some of us, we don't have to look far at all. We see in our own immediate lives and sphere of relationships, we see death, we see sickness, we see pain, we feel anxious, we feel stress. While God may have promised this peaceful, perfect world eventually, we don't experience it yet, do we? Our, our world is actually quite a bit more like the world that prompted the writing of Psalm 46, where the authors describe the horror of natural disasters, the rage of nations at war. And while the psalmist does kind of remain steadfast in hope, they're really honest about the trouble and the hardship of this world, and I find that comforting. Uh, the psalmist has much to grieve about. Let me read Psalm 46, 1 through 3 again. It says this, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. If you notice here in this text, there is a presumption of the presence of hardship and grief. There's no if, right? Not if the, worth, the earth gives way, but though the earth gives way. It's not if the waters roar and foam, but though the waters roar and foam. And this message is from God to us. It's a song uh, for the times that we face trouble and hardship. And there's an assumption that all of us at times will do just that. In the middle part of our stories, trouble is inevitable. Anxiety maybe even is inevitable. And the question before us today is how can we face the pain of a broken world and yet still believe those opening words of Psalm 46 that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble? And so today I just want to give us three reasons from Psalm 46 that we can remain hopeful in times of tragedy and anxiety. Let me give them to you up front. Three simple points. Number one, God is powerful. Number two, God is present. And number three, God has a purpose. God is powerful, God is present, God has a purpose. Uh, the idea of remaining hopeful in times of tragedy and grief may not feel applicable to you right now. You might be like, man, this is like a downer sermon. I don't know what we're doing here. Uh, maybe the world as you see it is going great and you're in a season of happiness and relative ease. That's awesome. Uh, but I think if we just take a moment of reflection, we probably realize that there are people around us that aren't and might need a truth like this, that might need hope like this. Maybe you could be an agent of grace in the life of someone who's hurting around you in the coming weeks. And again, probably the other thing that's just worth acknowledging is that we never know when our own worlds are gonna be thrown upside down, right? Uh, you know, February 2020 was one thing, March 2020, April 2020 was different. Uh, think of 9-11 if you're old enough to remember that or the time when you heard news that a family member is in the hospital. Those calls come suddenly. One minute things could be going great and the next minute we get a call or a text or we see the news and everything changes. And so we need to be ready at some level. I can remember, you know, myself and maybe all of us who are old enough to remember, we know exactly where we were when we heard about 9-11 and we knew about the planes crashing into the World Trade Center. I was in university at the time and I was walking out of my dorm room uh, to a class and our dorm room had a lobby and there was a bunch of people sitting around the lobby watching TV, which isn't normal, like it was like nine in the morning or something. 
And I remember like, oh, what are they looking at? You know, I look at the TV and they're like, oh, a plane crashed into the World Trade Center. And it, at the moment it was just like, oh, that's crazy. I can't believe that happened. And I sort of kept walking, uh, went to class. Uh, it was about an hour long class or so. The time I walked back, back into the lobby, this is, you know, pre-phones, so I don't have, you know, text message or anything like that. And just an hour later, the second plane had struck, the first tower had collapsed. And in that hour, the world changed. And for all of us, we never know when those hours are coming for us, when that moment's gonna happen where everything changes for us. And so we need to be prepared in advance for tragedy, for dealing with grief, for dealing with difficulty. We need to be able to know that God is our refuge and our strength all the time so that we're ready in those moments that we can't anticipate. Uh, so that we'll be able to endure hardship, grieve well, comfort those around us with the hope of the gospel and the knowledge of a God who is powerful, who is present and has a purpose, even in times of tragedy. So, okay, let's start with that first point. God is powerful. Number one, God is powerful. Uh, throughout this psalm, God is portrayed vividly as being strong and powerful. Uh, in Psalm 46, verse 1, he is called our refuge and our strength. Uh, he's not only strong in this, it's like he is so strong that it, oh, his strength overflows and becomes our strength. Uh, his voice, God's voice, is described in verse 6 as being strong enough to melt the earth. Uh, while the nations rage war, God is able to stop them in their tracks with a single utterance. Uh, the metaphors and that imagery continues in verse 7 where God is described as a fortress. Uh, a fortress was the center of a city's military defense, a place you could flee into to be protected in times of battle. And the idea is sort of a place where, like God being a place, a fortress that we could run to when things are difficult. That, that would have been how they thought of fortress. They would have heard fortress like, oh, that's where you go when things are falling apart. And this idea of God as our fortress is repeated again in the final verse, verse 11. And between these verses, we see the implications of God's strength. Let me read verses 8 and 9. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. The imagery here is of a God who is powerful, who has the strength to protect people, to overcome the armies of nations. This is a God who is able to bring lasting peace. Think about how difficult lasting peace is. The U.S. Armed Forces, the most uh, funded military in the history of the world, can't bring lasting peace. The United Nations, the most collaborative effort of all of the nations of the world, can't bring lasting peace. But the God described in Psalm 46 can make wars cease. That's a power we don't have apart from God but one that we desperately need. Think about Russia and Ukraine. Think about decades of conflicts between Palestinians and Israelis. Our world needs a God who is powerful enough to bring lasting peace. And the authors who wrote this psalm knew that God was powerful and able to protect his people as well as defeat his enemies and bring peace. And we know that because the preface to Psalm 46, it says the psalm was meant to be sung, and it was written by this interesting group of people called the Sons of Korah, uh, or the descendants of Korah, sometimes different translators call it. Sometimes they're called the Korhites, uh, they were a part of a tribe of Israel. They were a special tribe. And, uh, sorry, they are a part of the tribe of Levi, uh, which was a unique special tribe in Israel. Uh, in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, the Levites were a tribe that was devoted to serving God in the tabernacle and the temple as priests. So they were sort of like a priestly class of people that served in like a religious function. Uh, they cared for some of the most holy parts of the tabernacle and the temple, and the Korahite people became known for their singing and for their musical abilities. There's 11 different psalms that are attributed to the sons of Korah in the book of Psalms. They're mentioned a couple other times in the Old Testament, and one of the times that they're mentioned is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, you can turn there if you like. 
2 Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, many scholars believe that Psalm 46 is actually a part of what we read about in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you're looking for 2 Chronicles chapter 20, uh, find it in the table of contents in your Bible. Go to the beginning, look for 2 Chronicles, find the page, go there. Uh, big numbers are, are chapters, little numbers are verses if you're, if you're new to the Bible. But let me give you some context for 2 Chronicles 20. Uh, at that time, the king of Judah was a man named Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat reigned during a serious time of conflict and war. Uh, his kingdom's most significant threat was coming from neighboring nations of Moab and Ammon. Uh, and in one of those days, these nations, they decided they were going to join together with a couple other nations, surrounding nations around the kingdom of Judah, and they were going to destroy the kingdom of Judah. And they were going to try to annihilate God's people. And the, the people of Judah were not prepared for this. And the Bible re records King Jehoshaphat's response. And I want to read these excerpts from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, let me do verses 5 through 9 first. It said this, Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah, again, this is the king of the people, and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in distress, and you will hear us and save us. Verse 12, Jehoshaphat continues, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a beautiful text. Verse 18 through 19, Jehoshaphat continues, he bowed down with his face to the ground and all of the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. And then some of the Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites, those are the people we just mentioned, stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. It's very possible that what they sang and praised God with a loud voice is what we just read, Psalm 46. And the story goes on, and the next day, Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, sends out a group of singers, likely these same Korahites, to march and sing in front of their army as they go out to battle. And the story ends in a very surprising way, and it's a testimony to God's ability to defeat his enemies and bring peace. Let me read verses 22 and 23. So again, they're going out to battle. There's a group of Korahites or, or, or singers in front of the, of the army. And as they began to sing in praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished Mount Seir, they helped to destroy one another. God's people didn't even have to fight. Their enemies were like put against one another and they destroyed each other. The God of the Bible is a powerful God. He is a mighty fortress, a strong refuge, which is critical for us to know in times of trouble and difficulty, anxiety, stress, that God is capable of saving, that we are not left on our own without hope or help or recourse. God is not weak. He is a strong refuge. And, and much more could be said about this. This is a very a simple and consistent theme in the Bible, but at the very least, Psalm 46 teaches us that the God of the Bible is a powerful God. The second thing we learn from God about this psalm, Psalm 46, that can maybe help us in times of difficulty or anxiety is that God is present. Number two, God is present. We can also remain time, hopeful in times of tragedy because God is with us. He's present. The writer of Psalm 46 
Uh, you can turn back there if you like, East Korah Heights. It's very, they're very clear about this. Uh, verse 1 says that God is an ever-present help. Verse 4 describes God's city as a holy place where the Most High dwells. God is shown as living among and amidst his people. Verses 7 and 11 are identical. They begin with the phrase, the Lord Almighty is with us. The picture here is not of a distant deity, but a present God living amongst his people. And we know if you study the Bible and from other parts of scripture that God's presence was sort of uniquely found in some special places in the Old Testament uh, where people could go and sort of meet with God. And we see this progression in the, the narrative of scripture uh, that there's these sort of special places. The first one that comes up is kind of Mount Sinai where Moses goes and connects with God. The second is this tabernacle, which is sort of this temple that they're, this temple tent thing that they're supposed to, they're, they're instructed to build and take with them as they leave from Egypt to the promised land, the people carry it with them. And then when the Israelites settle in Jerusalem where they're going to be for the long term, Solomon, the third king of Israel, builds this incredible temple. And when this temple is dedicated, the Bible describes God's spirit coming in sort of a unique way in filling this temple. And this is how God was believed to dwell amongst the people in their capital city, in this temple building. And so the people of God would journey from all over the nation and even outside of the nation and to come to the temple and they would pray and they would offer sacrifices to God for the forgiveness of their sins. The temple, as you can imagine, had limitations. You had to travel to get to it. You had to go through a series of priests and rituals to meet God. And so while the temple was this incredible symbol of God's presence among his people, it wasn't God's ideal. It wasn't like the end goal that God had. It was a symbol that pointed to a greater reality because this temple was just a temporary meeting place. It was just like that same tabernacle. Uh, this temple would one day be destroyed by the Babylonians as a result of God's people's disobedience. Then there was a second temple, a lesser temple that was built. It eventually too would be destroyed. And the Jewish temple has never been rebuilt again for thousands of years. These tabernacles, these temples, they always intended were intended to point to this greater truth. They showed that God desires to live amongst his people intimately, that he wants to dwell and live among them, but they're not like the end goal. The tabernacle and the temples demonstrate this truth, but they were uh, not the ultimate way God wanted to demonstrate that his presence, that he desired for his presence to be among his people. And so to fully kind of understand how God wanted to be present and dwell with his people, we have to understand who Jesus is. Uh, he was the person who these previous meeting places pointed to. This Messiah who would in his own body be like a new temple, a new meeting place between man and God. And so when Jesus was born, the Bible describes his really unique birth and gives him a bunch of different kinds of titles. Uh, one of those titles is Emmanuel. Maybe you're familiar with Christmas song. Anybody heard like, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. I'm sorry. I just apologize for singing in front of you guys. Great song, though. Very theologically rich, really like one of the most accurate and beautiful theological songs about how the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come, to rescue them and to be present with them again. Uh, Matthew 1.23, it's the beginning of the New Testament, it opens and says this, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's presence was fully expressed in this Emmanuel who was fully God and yet fully man, and Jesus, God present with us, a greater temple, a greater tabernacle, and God's presence was there with him amongst the people. But it even goes further than that. After Jesus died and rose again, he sent his own spirit as an indwelling presence, not God among his people, but God inside of his people. Now God living inside of each person whom God has redeemed. 
And so now, through the death of Jesus, each person who has faith in Christ can have daily access to God through the Holy Spirit. When we face trouble, we can know that God is powerful. We can also know that God desires to be present with us. We can know this because we see him in the story of God's people, present with them in the temple, present with them in the tabernacle, present when Jesus was amongst the people, this Emmanuel God sent, but now present in our very own hearts and souls through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus' death and resurrection. God promises his presence to all of those who believe in him. God is powerful and he is present. But here's where the rubber really meets the road, right? And maybe this question has been formulating in your own mind or heart, if God is so powerful, if God is so present, why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he help? If God is powerful enough to change my circumstances, to defeat armies, to raise people from the dead, to heal the sick, why doesn't he? If he is present enough to know how bad I hurt, how much anxiety I feel to witness the pain and the tragedy around me in this broken world, or this difficulty, this tension, this stress inside of me, why doesn't he help? If God is powerful, if God is present, why doesn't he act now? I've heard this described as the question that never really goes away. Even though we can read the scriptures, we encounter God's miraculous acts, uh, we read of his great power, his love, his capacity to save, his promises of peace, his perfect kingdom. We just are left with this, but why doesn't he do something about the broken world we see around us right now? And we might get moments in our own lives where we glimpse his power, moments where we experience the depths of his love, but they're often separated by sort of long stretches of loneliness, seasons of mourning and dissatisfaction. We still daily see and experience the brokenness of this world. Why is this? Let's consider our third reason that we have hope in times of tragedy and grief. Number three, God has a purpose. God has a purpose. I can only say and comfort you with the hope that we have in the middle chapters of this longer story, one that God has already written. I can only comfort you with the fact that there is someone that will one day provide the answers. Uh, today, we have, you know, experienced only like a foretaste of a kingdom that will one day be free of sin, free of death, free of Satan, God's enemies, free of all of the things inside of us and outside of us that are painful, free of injustice. And we can know that God has a plan and that all of that we experience in our lives today is moving towards a great ending in which all that we know and experience is wrong will be made right that one day we will stand face to face with Jesus and knowing him, we will have an answer to all of our questions about why God does or doesn't do something. I can't answer those questions for you. I can try, I can point you towards the best reasons I have and there are some really good reasons, but I want you to know that one day you will stand face to face with someone who will answer those questions. Let me read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. It says this, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. There are no easy answers, but there is a God who is powerful and a God who promised to be present with us, a God who promises that one day we will understand. And Christ lived among us as Emmanuel, God with us. He experienced the temptation of sin, the loss of loved ones. Jesus knew the betrayal of friends. He knew anxiety. He knew stress. He lived the injustice of political systems. He lived the pain of death. 
In the story that we are living, we don't live it alone. There is a God, Emmanuel, that is with us, that personally knows our struggles. And so consequently, we are not without hope. We can look to Jesus. Jesus knew that God had a purpose and a plan, and Jesus trusted in God throughout his trials. We look at him and we see, how did Jesus work? He trusted God. Think about it. Jesus had full access to the power of God, and yet he didn't use it. Uh, the night before he was died, Jesus was arrested. His disciples began to fight with the people who were trying to take him captive. And Jesus says this, this is Matthew 26. Do you not think I can call on my, my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus knew God had a plan, a purpose, a story, one laid down since the foundations of the world one that had been slowly unfolding in the scriptures. And so he didn't utilize the power that he had access to. He trusted that the hardships and the difficulty he was experiencing would ultimately be worth the cost. Though he was powerful, he didn't use his power to save himself. And even more, what's interesting is that evening, Jesus also left his disciples. He left his closest friends, the people he was nearest to, who enjoyed his intimate fellowship and presence because it would be for their benefit. That while they would miss them, he knew. He knew there was a plan, there was a story, there was a next chapter, something better was coming. On the night he was with his disciples when Jesus was about to leave, he says this, this is John 16, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus, who, who loved deeply and loved and he just cared for his disciples, he leaves them because he knew something greater needed to happen, something better was coming. Jesus laid down his power and he faced death. He left and he was no longer present with his disciples. The power's gone, the presence gone, but he did so because he trusted that God had a purpose for these actions. And when we look at Jesus, we see a model for how we too can trust in God in the midst of hardship by believing that even when we don't see his power, even when we don't feel his presence, we still believe he has a purpose. We still trust, we still hope, we still love. And while I can't give a full answer for all the difficulties, I can point in the direction of what I think this grand purpose is. Very simply, I think it's that many, many more people would know God and that God would be glorified in all of the earth. That this story that began in the garden with this good world and then was broken by sin and fractured throughout humanity, that then God began this process of calling a people and then from that people sending a Messiah and then sending, making a, a church and sending that church into the world so that all these people could know about Jesus and complete this story. This is all happening. We see this grand purpose in our psalm even today. Psalm 46 verse 10, it says this. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. There's this grand ending. And Jesus himself more, more fully explains the same purpose the night he was arrested. This is John 17. This is that same ending where Jesus is going to leave the world. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with glory I had with you before the world began. That is God's great purpose there, that he would again be fully glorified and that people from all nations would know him intimately, that you and I and countless others, people we can't even imagine would know God, would know him, would be redeemed and intimately know our creator God once again. This is the end of that story that we endure this difficult middle for, that Jesus endured death for. This is the good news of the gospel that we have been given, that God is writing a good story through each of, for each of us through Jesus Christ, and that he invites you to believe and participate in this story that does have a difficult middle, to believe this good story, to guard it, to live according to it, and share it with the world. Uh, this is also the message we find consistently in the New Testament. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which is sort of like a New Testament, Psalm 46. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you want to check that out. Why and how do we endure hardship? By remembering we have received this gospel story, that we have a purpose, and that in this middle period we believe and share this story so that we and many others will one day experience it fully in eternity. Uh, I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. Uh, it's not normally something you do in Bibles, and it reads something this long, but I want to read it to you because it's a long section of Scripture, but a really powerful one that I think echoes some of the themes that we've talking about, uh, that we read about in Psalm 46 and we've been sharing today. It's about hope, having hope in the midst of, tra of tragedy, of grief, and anxiety. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life might also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise, up, raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All of this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He's talking about 
looking at that greater story, looking at that greater gospel, that greater narrative of God who rescues and saves and allows us to endure in the middle of difficulty. This is the reason we endure in times of hardship and grief, because we believe this greater story, this greater purpose that God has and is inviting us and others to join in. Please know that this world, as hard as it is to recognize, is just the beginning that there is an eternal kingdom that God invites us to, where our present struggles, as real as they feel, will one day seem, like they do in this text, light and momentary. Preparation for a time in which we will join in eternal glory with God, one that is beyond comparison to this present world. And maybe this story is new to you, maybe bits of it are confusing, maybe you already believed it, but you need to be reminded of it again. Because I think it's when we believe this story, when we understand that we're a part of this greater thing happening, this gospel, this purpose of God, that we're able to endure hardship, that we're able to endure anxiety, that we're able to grieve, but grieve with hope. In Psalm 46, it it has a few commands of action. I want to offer them to you today as we wrap up some application here. Uh, In this psalm, there's three calls of response, three calls to action. First, number one, it says, come. See that in verse 8. Come and see what the Lord has done. If God is to be our refuge, our fortress, our strength in times of trouble, we must come to him. There's something we must do in response. We can't keep running away. We can't continue in apathy. There's nothing that Satan or our our sinful selves want to do more than continue clinging to our own pride and self-sufficiency, our own idolatry and our own sin. No, we must come. We must turn towards God, away from everything else, and come to him. If you want to talk to me, you want to talk to someone who wants to pray with you, we have a prayer team here. If you want to know what it would look like to come and follow Jesus, we'd love to talk with you about what that might mean. Uh, The second thing we see here, the second call to action in Psalm 46 is see. See, verse 8. We are not only invited to come, we are invited to see. Uh, Other translations use the word behold, which is kind of a beautiful word. Behold is to consider something, to see it and consider its greatness. The psalm says that we should see and behold the works of the Lord. We should take time to remember all of the things that God has done in history, in our lives. And I believe that uh, through Christ's death and resurrection, we, when we behold and we think about our life through that lens, everything looks different. Everything looks different. It, it is this work of God that makes it possible for us to join this greater story and to understand our present difficulties without hope, without hopelessness. And lastly, the third call to action is to be still and know. We see that in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. The final call is an action of action is a call to faith. To be still and know, to be still and to trust. It's not a call to do a bunch of good deeds so you can earn favor with God. That's not how Christianity works. It's a call to faith, a call to trust, to rest confidently in the knowledge of God and his son, Jesus Christ. It's a call to be still and know Jesus. Come, see, be still and know. Let's pray. God, I just sense there's just heaviness in this room, even in our own hearts. As we think about the difficulty and the challenges we face, the things that grieve us, the things that make us anxious, the heavy commands in Scripture that you have for us to come and follow you. God, I pray that each of us, that we would wrestle as we hear your invitation to come, to follow, to see, to behold, to be still. Lord, I pray as you speak to us through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would all wrestle 
and choose to receive in faith the call to come and follow you. It's in Jesus' name.